It's so good to be in the house of the Lord, amen? Such a sweet spirit of peace in the house today, and uh, I just pray blessing over you. I've been praying for you all week that God would do something uh, good among us. Uh, God's been doing good something, uh, been doing great things among us, and uh, it's really great to hear the testimonies of what he's doing. Uh, Here's a question for you. When was the last time you were lost? Last time you were lost, right? It's okay to admit it. It's okay to admit that you don't always take the scenic route. Some of you say, I always take the scenic route. You're just lost, right? It's okay to admit it. Now, I think there's two kinds of lost, right? I think there's blissfully lost. That's where you're just on the road trip, and you don't even know you're lost. You're just enjoying the road trip, right? But eventually something happens where you realize that like, the scenic route is getting a little longer than you thought it would be, and nothing looks familiar. Maybe it's been a while since you saw something you recognized. You know, maybe you're realizing that you're headed in the opposite uh, direction of your destination. So there's blissfully lost, and then there's anxiously lost, right? It's like you're just enjoying life, not realizing you're lost, and then all of a sudden the realization comes, and all of a sudden you start getting anxious. How many know that's when the gas gets starts to say low fuel, right? And how we know once you're lost, that's when everything compounds, right? I, I remember as a, as a young adult, I grew up in eastern Ontario, uh, east of uh, Toronto area, and, and uh, some friends and I, we wanted to go see Niagara Falls. Anyone ever been to Niagara Falls? Niagara Falls, beautiful. If you've never been there, uh, you got to get there. Uh, Niagara Falls, and we were on our way to Niagara Falls, and I was driving, and as a young driver, I had never really explored west of Toronto. I uh, always grew up east of Toronto. So I was driving to Niagara Falls. Well, I know some of you may not be familiar with uh, Ontario geography too much, but you can imagine my surprise when after driving for about two hours, I didn't end up in Niagara Falls. I ended up in Guelph, Ontario. And if you know where Guelph is, it's pretty far from Niagara Falls. Niagara Falls goes down around the lake, and we went up like this. We were, I was doing this, right? When I got to Guelph, I realized something was wrong. I realized that I'd taken a wrong turn. I was on the wrong road. And I started asking myself, how did I end up in this position? How did I get here? But this is what I said. It always compounds, right? So I decide, well, I got to turn around, and I got to take the next road back south as, as quickly as I could. So I turn left onto this road that I thought was going to take me uh, south, and it was taking me south. But what I didn't realize at this time, I've, I've, I've grown a lot since this in my driving abilities, but, but I didn't realize that this was a four-lane highway I turned on. And I turned left into the right-hand lane, but it was the right-hand lane of the oncoming traffic. I didn't realize I had to go around the median to get, and so I'm driving down this highway, going the wrong direction. You ever hear about this on the news? You're like, how do people do that, right? How do you get on the highway? What, like, what were you thinking? I, I did it. I was going down, and all of a sudden, I saw the oncoming traffic coming towards me, and I thought, that's funny that they're in the wrong uh, lane. And then I realized I was not in the right-hand lane. I was in the oncoming traffic, and I just panicked, and I just did, I just yanked the wheel to the right. I, there's a median there. Our, my little Ford Topaz, or Tempo, it jumped the median. Like, whoa, whoa, you know? And we, like, jumped the median, and we were like, oh, my gosh, everyone in my car was like, whoo, you know? That was, was quite the thing. <laughs> quite the thing. 
Well, we did eventually, eventually end up in Niagara Falls. To, to top it all off, you know, we enjoyed our time there. And, uh, and then we came back a little later on that night, and, and I saw a car that looked like mine. Uh, it had a, a parking ticket on it. I didn't know that you had to pay for parking after 7 in Niagara Falls. They just try to get your money all, all day long there. And uh, so I got this parking ticket, and I said, well, the good thing, though, is that's not my car, because that car is missing hubcaps. <laughs> When I hit the median, I lost my hub. It was, it was a whole thing, right? When you're lost, you ask yourself, how did I end up here? Where did I go wrong? How did I get so far off course? What do I have to do to get back on track? How many know that sometimes in life it can be disorienting? Disorienting in life. Sometimes you just feel in life. You're like, I'm just doing well. I, I, I know where I'm going. I know what my goals are. It's smooth sailing. And then something happens that it just makes you feel and become aware all of a sudden that you're far from your goal. You're far from what you thought was, was uh, the, the destination that you had set out for yourselves. You know, a lot of times I speak with people and in the journey of life, they're like, you know, I was doing so good and I thought I was on the path to the good life. I thought I was on the path to meaning and purpose, uh, the, the, uh, the life of fulfillment, and something jolts them into the awareness that maybe they are off course, maybe that their, their goals and the destination they'd set out for uh, wasn't actually that the goal and the destination that where they actually wanted to arrive. And some, sometimes I meet people in life and they're saying, how did I end up here? This isn't the life that I had planned or thought or I was on track for. No, these are the moments I find, oftentimes, that Jesus shows up in the most intimate and powerful ways. And he says this, he says, follow me, follow me, follow me and let me lead you from your lostness. Our, our series that we're in right now is based on these two words, follow me. In John 8, 12, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. If you follow me, you won't have to walk in darkness because you will have the light that leads to life. How many are thankful for the light of Jesus that has led you into full life, fulfilled life, purposeful life? Amen. So we're in the middle of this series, and we've been looking 13 times the scriptures recorded that Jesus says these words, follow me. And some of those are duplicate stories, and but we've been looking at the, the stories surrounding this, these statements, and, and this is often given as an invitation. Jesus gives us invitation to the people he's talking to. And, and so each week we're going to be digging deeper into the story and looking at how we too can respond to Jesus' invitation to follow him. How many know that every invitation of Jesus comes with a confrontation? The confrontation, there comes a decision that you and I need to make whether or not we are going to accept his invitation or not. Here's the thing about saying yes to following Jesus, though. You know, we don't always know from the outset where the road's going to lead, right? We don't always know from the outset where the journey's going to take us. When we say yes to Jesus, we're signing up for something, not fully realizing what might lie ahead. Have you experienced that, right? But here's the thing, when we set out trusting Jesus, when we set out following him uh, in a position of faith, this is what I found time and time again, even though we might be surprised along the journey, we discover that Jesus is more beautiful, he's more faithful, the adventure is more fulfilling, that there's no greater calling, no greater purpose, no better life than the life of following Jesus, right? Uh, I've never met someone that's really said, I have regrets in following Jesus because my life is way better than I could have ever imagined. 
Here's the thing we need to recognize with the disciples. As we read these stories of scripture, the disciples didn't know what saying yes to Jesus uh, was, was going to bring their life. They didn't know what Jesus was going to do in them or through them. You know, when this rabbi, this teacher walked up to them one day and said, follow me, there's no way that they could know where their yes was about to take them. But yet they took Jesus up on that offer. See, Jesus was different than every other religious leader that they'd ever encountered. Jesus was always saying these radical things. He was always uh, opposing the, the popularly held views, the traditional ways of thinking and doing things. You know, think about it. You know, if you were a Christian today, imagine this, that someone showed up to, to town this week. Someone showed up to Penticton and said, I am the way to God. Just picture that. I'm the way to God, and I'm going to be, you know, downtown. I'll be teaching you the ways to God this week. Come, listen to me. Follow me. Actually, if you follow me, you're following God, right? Picture that. If that happened to us, we'd be like, yeah, I don't think I'm going to be going down there this week, right? But similarly, what's happening? Jesus is coming along. He's preaching, and he's teaching. And, and this is what we got to understand as we read the, the gospel narrative. Jesus wasn't the only one claiming to be the Messiah, he wasn't the only one claiming to be God. There were others who claimed to be God, who claimed to be the Messiah, the, claimed to be the deliverer of Israel from oppression. But here's the thing about Jesus. There was a passion. There was a, a energy. There was a, a power of God. But it wasn't just hype. It was hype with substance. Jesus was coming, and there was miracles and healings and breakthrough, and people were being transformed. Something was different about this rabbi and teacher. Here's the thing, Jesus knew who he was, and he knew what his purpose was, and because of that, people could tell the authenticity in Jesus' message. Luke 19, 10, Jesus says of himself, the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. Son of Man being a traditional uh, statement used uh, in the Old Testament to represent the Son of God, to God himself, the Messiah. Jesus knew, I am the Son of God, and I know my purpose in this world is to come to save those who are lost, both the anxiously lost and those who are blissfully unaware. Jesus came to them and said, follow me. And he offers us that invitation today as well. Follow me. And you will have the light that leads to life. This is the invitation Jesus gave to everyone. He gave it to the rich and to the poor. Uh, he gave it to the religious and the non-religious. He was giving it to the young, to the old, people who had good reputations, people who had bad reputations. To each and every one, Jesus said, follow me. And he's not inviting them to religion. He's not saying, follow this religious system. He's not saying, uh, observe these rituals and you'll have life. He's not saying, keep up with these rules. If you adhere to this list of do's and don'ts, it will lead you to life. No, he says, follow me. Follow me. He's inviting them into relationship. He wants to be known by them and he wants to know them. And like I said, every invitation of Jesus to follow comes with a confrontation within ourselves of whether or not we will accept his invitation or not. It was true then, and it was true today. So if you'll turn to me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 9, uh, we're going to continue in our series. We're going to be looking at uh, a story that has two groups of people, two groups of people who are equally lost, 
One is blissfully lost and unaware, and the other one is fully aware of their lostness. Matthew 9, verse 9. It says, as Jesus was walking along, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at his tax collector's booth. Follow me and be my disciple, Jesus said to him. So Matthew got up and followed him. Later, Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors and other disreputable sinners. But when the Pharisees saw this, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Now, for some background, this story also appears in Mark's gospel, chapter 2. And Mark uses Matthew's given name. Uh, the, his name was Levi, the son of Alphaeus. Uh, but here we see Matthew in his own account uh, telling his own personal story. And he uses the name that Jesus gave him, the name Matthew. When He was Levi, but when he uh, met Jesus, Jesus changed his name and transferred this name to him, Matthew, which means the gift of God. He had this new life, this new identity, and that's how what he uses to write this story. You ever known someone that had like a different name? You saw their driver's license? You're like, that's not the name I know you by, right? I saw Kevin Hill. He's got a different name. I saw his driver's license recently. He's got a different name. Uh, and uh, I won't tell you what it is. <laughs> Mostly because I forget. <laughs> Here's a cool side note, some Bible trivia for you. Never in Matthew's account do you ever see Matthew writing down anything that he said. You, you never see anything in Matthew talking about himself. He's actually not writing a story of himself. He's writing the story of Jesus. He's, his life message is proclaiming this is what Jesus has said and done. It's an amazing thing to see. And so here we see Jesus. He's assembling his team. It's like the original Avengers. You know, he's, he's Avengers Unite. He's gathering them all together. He's got some openings on his team. And, uh, and these are the guys he's going to spend the next three years investing in, the guys that he's going to be uh, preparing to lead this movement. Uh, they don't know it yet, but he's about to hand them the, the biggest movement, the most life-changing movement of all of history, and he's preparing them. And so he's walking through the outdoor outlet shop, shopping mall. You know, that's how, I, that's how I envision it, right? He's going through the mall. It's one of those outdoor shopping malls, probably in Lake Florida. That's, that's kind of where I like to be. You know, it's hot, sunny. He's out there, and he, he passes a booth. And, and he sees Matthew at his booth, and he extends this invitation to him. Hey, follow me. Now, Matthew is not at the booth selling sunglasses. You know, he's not selling cell phone cases. It says that it's a, a tax collector's booth. Now, no offense to you if you work at the CRA, you know, <laughs> especially this time of year. But no one really likes tax people that much, right, you know. We always feel like they have their hands in our pockets, you know. And so this is exactly how it was in this point in Israel's history. The tax collector was despised. They were looked down on as the lowest of society because as the Romans had begun to conquer uh, and, and expand their empire, expand their territory, uh, what they would do is they would take locals and they would put them in positions of authority and power and, and they would appoint tax collectors on their behalf who would uh, basically tax their local population. 
Uh, but one of the privileges of the power that came with that was that the, uh, the, the tax collector role was open to abuse. It was open to corruption. And, and so they would begin to tax everything and anything. They would begin to raise the rates. They, they, you know, oh, you crossed the lake in the boat? You got to owe me some tax, you know? Oh, you rode your donkey on our highway? Yep, uh, we'll take some tax for that too. They were beginning to tax everything and anything. And in the process, they were filling their pockets and their bank accounts. And here's the thing. There's nothing that people could do. It was corrupt, but the Romans didn't care as long as they were getting their share. Now, here's the thing. It's easy to see why the tax collectors were despised. They were essentially viewed as traitors. They were the ones in partnership with the Roman regime, and they were the ones who were, were getting rich off the backs of their fellow countrymen. They were the ones who were exploiting and, and, uh, and, and profiting through their power on their own, at their own people's misfortune. So it's ironic, isn't it, that it's the tax collector that Jesus invites to follow him. It's not like he's liked. He's the least liked of all the people. And he's the least likely. I, I don't know, maybe Jesus didn't have everyone's resumes. Maybe he didn't really know, you know, who he was recruiting. You know, he didn't look at the resumes. But uh, he didn't say, oh, I'll take Matthew because he's influential. He didn't say, oh, I'll take Matthew because he's got his life together. What a model citizen. This is someone I want on my team, right? J Jesus didn't even make the invitation conditional. He didn't say, Matthew, if you start following the rules, then you can come and follow me. He didn't say, Matthew, why don't you take six months to get your life together and then follow me? He didn't even say, Matthew, why don't you take this 12-week course and then come follow me? He just said, Matthew, follow me. And he did. See, Jesus looks at this guy who's essentially considered a crook, and he says, follow me. Now, I think it's pretty safe to say that you and I would probably pick someone else to be on our team, wouldn't we? This isn't the guy that we're... But here's the thing. There's no ifs to Jesus' invitation. There's no if you get your life together, if you become more disciplined, uh, if you cut out all your bad habits, if you start keeping the rules. There are no ifs to Jesus' invitation. Romans 5, verse 6 says, When we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. Jesus died for you and for me while we were in our sin, and he invites us to follow him, just like he invited the tax collector, the thief, the critic, the doubter, all the people of Scripture who were lost and following their own ways of living, Jesus extended to them all this unconditional invitation, follow me. This is what God's grace is, that Jesus who knows everything about us, Jesus who, who knows our sin, still invites us to follow him. I wish Matthew would have gone into more detail, right? Like, I would have loved more description. Like, like what were you doing when, when Jesus called you, right? What, what was your thought process? How did you feel? You know, what, what did it feel like to have Jesus? What were your apprehensions? You know, what, you know, what was it as you were wrestling what, to take him up on this invitation? What was it that pushed you over the edge to, to say, yes, I would like to know more? But Matthew doesn't write anything else. I'm sure he had some reservations. Like, he's giving up his career. 
You know, he's giving up his source of income. He's giving up this position of power where he had this influence over people. How many know when you're not liked by people, you better at least have power, right? You know, you don't want to not have any power and not be liked, right? Because he's putting himself in a vulnerable position. And it says on top of all this that Matthew's in Capernaum. And just a couple of chapters later in Matthew, in Matthew 16, he records that Capernaum actually gets a rebuke from Jesus. Jesus looks at the whole town and says, you guys, he said, if I had done these miracles, if I had done, you know, these healings anywhere else, like the whole town would be following me. But you guys are so hard-hearted. He said, you know, it's, he, he said to them, like, this, is, this is a bad place to be. And so it wasn't a popular decision for Matthew to follow Jesus. Maybe he was already so ostracized that he's like, I don't really even care anymore what people think about me. They already don't like me. Whatever it was, we don't know. Maybe he was looking for an excuse to quit his job. I don't know. Lots of stuff I'd like to ask Matthew one day. But this is what we see in the scripture. He says, yes, I'll follow Jesus. He just simply writes, Jesus said, follow me. And he writes, and so Matthew got up and followed him. Right? If only it was as easy as that. Right? Hey, who's ever had kids? If you're like, if you would just listen to what I asked you the first time, just did what I asked you, right? We've all been there. It would have been so much easier. But Matthew says he follows Jesus, and then the very next thing we know, he's hosting a retirement party. He's got a party happening at his house. He's got Jesus and the disciples. He's got his coworkers from the tax office. He's got his buddies from the Thursday night bowling league, Right? You gotta read the Bible with some interpretation. Look at verse 10. Matthew invited Jesus and his disciples to his home as dinner guests, along with many tax collectors, those are the guys from his office, and other disreputable sinners. That's the Thursday night bowling league. <laughs> These are the people that Matthew knew when he left. Right? These are the people he loved, and he invites them to come celebrate this new chapter in his life. And they're having a great time. They're sharing a meal together. Uh, you know, I just picture that the music must have been a little too loud, you know, because all of a sudden a bunch of party poopers show up in the driveway, and they're kind of looking at what's going on in there, right? Uh, we see that. Verse 11, the Pharisees saw this. And they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with such scum? I don't know if they were mad, they weren't invited. I don't know what, but they show up and they're like, what's happening here at Matthew's house? And they get all religious. And if you've been around for a minute, you know, we tend to look at the Pharisees through the lens of all the negativity that Jesus was always rubbing up against them. But in their day, they were viewed as the role models. And in fact, they were really good rule keepers. We see that the Pharisees actually observed the Torah and the law. They, they knew what the law of the Old Testament was. They were the rule followers so much so that they created 613 laws that would help them observe the 10 that God gave them, right? Now, I don't know about you. When I was raising my kids, they never made rules to make sure they kept the rules that I gave them, right? <laughs> it wasn't like, hey, here's what I want of you. And they're like, oh, what, what, what more could we do to honor those rules, right? But that's what these uh, Pharisees were doing. And so they're out in the driveway, and they're wondering why Jesus and his disciples would be hanging out with Matthew and, and his kind of people, right? Here's the thing. When you justify yourself and you relate to God based on your goodness— based on your ability to keep the rules, guess what happens? So you begin to evaluate other people on their goodness, 
on their ability to keep the rules or lack thereof. And instead of seeing all people as people God loves, we begin to see people of whether they are worthy or unworthy, deserving or undeserving. Are they inside or outside of the circle? But when we come to Jesus, Romans 3 says, No one is righteous, not even one. For everyone has sinned and we all fall short of God's glorious standard. When we realize our position and what God's done for us, it helps us realize that everyone, everywhere, are people that God loves. And we don't stand in judgment of them because we look at ourselves and say, I'm in the same boat as you, a sinner saved by grace. God wants to bring those people into his family, into his fellowship as well. So in their religious rule following, the Pharisees had forgotten this. And as a result, they had missed the point. They missed the point entirely about what Jesus had come to do. He said, I've come to seek and to save the lost. How many know when you miss the point, you miss the purpose? Right? When you miss the point, you miss the purpose. Jesus had a purpose in what he was doing. There was a purpose in attending the party. Now, Jesus must have heard about the commotion in the driveway because uh, he comes out to address it. In verse 12, it says, when Jesus heard this, he said, healthy people don't need a doctor. Sick people do. And then he added, now go and learn the meaning of this scripture. I want you to show mercy, not offer sacrifice. For I have come to call those who think not, I have come to call not those who think they are righteous, but those who know they are sinners. Don't you just secretly love it when the arrogant know-it-alls get put in their place by someone who actually knows what they're talking about, right? It's kind of like, it brings a little satisfaction. Well, these religious leaders, they're confronted with Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, here's an Old Testament. You guys love the law and the Old Testament so much. Here's a verse I want you to go and learn the meaning of, and it's from Hosea chapter 6. He says, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, and acknowledgement of God rather than burnt offerings. Hosea's writings in the Old Testament were a response to Israel's hypocrisy. What God's addressing in this passage is that they were outwardly obeying God's law, offering sacrifices, they were doing the rituals, and they were, uh, you know, kind of keeping the covenant. But what Hosea is challenging in them is that they're actually far from God. He actually is challenging them that they've started to worship the idols and the gods of the surrounding nations. And so the challenge of Hosea uh, is that they were technically keeping the rules, but they weren't loving God. They were outwardly doing the right things, but inwardly their hearts were in the wrong places. And so the Pharisees would have known that this is what Jesus was kind of insinuating about them in this passage. In fact, in Matthew 15, Jesus comes right out and says it. He says, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Jesus is saying that God desires relationship. He desires relationship more than religious rituals or routines. It's, it's love and not just lip service to him. See, if you miss the point, you'll miss the purpose. And this is the thing about, about following God. See, rules without rela relationship lead to rebellion. Rules for the sake of rules leads to rebellion. If, if rules apart from relationship, if we give people a list of rules and say, keep these rules, we'll say, well, why? 
What is the purpose? What, why are we doing this? What is, the, what is the point of these rules? But when we realize that these rules are meant to keep a relationship open, when we realize that these, relation, these rules are meant to safeguard the hearts and the minds of people, we've, when we have relationship, then the rules take on new meaning, right? When we have, when we're, I'm talking all about my kids today. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I don't know, getting ready for Mother's Day, I guess. I don't know. I'm thinking about parenting. But, but here's the thing. When I, tell my, when I tell my kids, I do this and don't do that, it doesn't go so well, right? But when I say, do this because, right? Do this because I don't want you to get hurt. This is what could happen. This is what I'm trying to prevent. When we have a relationship and you understand where I'm coming from, what my thoughts are, where my heart's at, then the rules make sense. And you're like, oh, I can be on board with that, right? But when you just see, like, any people you just, like, some of you are rule followers. Anyone you're just like, I hate, I don't like being told what to do, right? You don't put your hand up, right? But sometimes you go places, right? And, and I'll admit, I, I'm this way. I, I'm a leader, and so I like to make the rules. I like to think about what needs to happen. Sometimes I go places, and people have made other rules, and I'm like, I don't understand the point behind that rule, right? When you go places, and you're like, I don't understand. Why are we doing this? What is this rule? It doesn't make sense to me. It's not what I would do. Guess what happens? You get a little rebellious, right? You're like, I, I don't think I'm going to keep that rule, right? That one doesn't apply to me. Rules without relationship lead to rebellion. Why are we doing this? And here's the thing. Ritual without purpose leads to empty religion. Ritual without purpose leads to empty religion. If the ritual in themselves become the end goal, we just do the ritual because that's what we've always done, it leads to empty religion. But when we remember the purpose, what is this ritual supposed to ignite in me? What is it supposed to remind me of? What is it supposed to bring me back to? What is the, the point and the purpose of this? That's where we have fulfilled a relationship with God. See, following Jesus is more than following the rules or religious routine. We can be religiously doing religious things. I want to see you at church every Sunday. I want you to religiously come to church every week, but not just because I want you to come to church. That's not the end goal. The end goal is that I want us to be growing in deeper relationship with God and with each other. You can religiously do religious things and miss out on the life-giving relationship that Jesus intends for us to have. You can sing the worship songs with your voice, and Jesus says, I, I want your heart. Right? You can give boatloads of cash in the offering, which I, I hope you will. <laughs> but Jesus is saying, I, I want your life, right? Jesus is saying, uh, uh, we can keep doing what we think is right, but Jesus said, I want you to follow me through the partnership of my Holy Spirit that I've given you to lead you and guide you and, and for you to be on this journey with me, following the voice of God. See, Jesus was constantly frustrating the Pharisees because he was doing things in opposition to the law, or at least the law the way that they interpreted it, right? Because remember, they'd made up 600 other laws to, you know, improve on the 10 that God gave them, right? And so they, Jesus was always butting up against their laws, and he, he had that rebellious spirit. He's like, these aren't God's laws. Like, these are your laws. You know, why do I have to observe? He healed on the Sabbath. Imagine that, right? Someone needed a healing, and he was like, yeah, I gotta wait till Monday, 
you know, to heal you. You got to come back, right? And not only that, after he healed the guy, he said, hey, why don't you take out your mat since you don't need it and go home? And they're like, how can you pick up his, like, you're causing him to work on the Sabbath. They were, they were so, like, tied up. And, and, and then we see here that he's eating food with sinners. Oh. <laughs> and I love how Matthew says, not just sinners, but disreputable sinners, right? There's lots of sinners, like some categories of sin. I, I don't know, Right? And then he's inviting people from all walks of life to follow him. He was constantly frustrating the religious rule keepers because Jesus was breaking their rules for a purpose. And his purpose was always pointing to something greater. His purpose was follow me. Follow me. Don't follow rules. Don't follow religion. Follow me. And I will give you the light that leads to life. Coming back to the Pharisees' question, why does your teacher eat with such scum? Jesus did have a purpose in mind. I think first off, he wanted to affirm Matthew. Like, just, just think about this. Matthew follows Jesus, and his first response is to throw a party. I've met Jesus, and now I want the people I know and love to meet Jesus too. And so he throws this party, and he invites all of his friends, including the Thursday night bowling league guys, and he says, I want to introduce you to someone in my life. Uh, Jesus loves a good party. Now, he's always hanging around the food table. Like, if you read the Gospels, I want you to pay attention. How many times is Jesus, he's either going to a party, he's at a party, he's leaving a party, he's at a meal, he's, he's going to, it's like, always, Jesus is always going to parties and meals. So much so that the Pharisees accuse him of being a glutton and a drunkard. Right? Now, we know that's not true, but there must have been some kernel of truth. He must have been at the party table quite a bit, you know, at the food table. But here's the thing. Jesus wasn't just there for the pastries, right? There was a point to the party for him, and it's this, that food turns strangers into friends. Food turns strangers into friends. You, wrote, you heard that here at church today. You can tweet that on your way home. Food turns strangers into friends. See, the Pharisees saw meals, they saw breaking bread together as a barrier that would separate people. They said, these are the kinds of people that it's appropriate to eat with, and these are the kind that aren't, right? If you look like us, and you act like us, and you believe like us, then let's break bread together. But if you're outside of that circle, you would never be seen at the table with them. We see that happening even, you know, with Jesus' disciples later on. You know the story of Peter, right, and the Gentiles. He, he comes to the Gentiles, and he breaks bread with them, and a bunch of religious people are going, what are you doing eating with the Gentiles? They don't look like us, act like us, think like us. And he's kind of like, oh, yeah, sorry. And he kind of has a moment, right, and if you know that story. And he's kind of rustling, what would Jesus do in this moment? Here's the thing. Jesus saw meals as the best way to reach people and relate to him. Here's our evangelism strategy. Let's eat together. That's, our, that's my evangelism strategy. Let's share a meal, right? How many would sign up for evangelism? You're like, I don't know about going door to door, but I can go table to table having some meals. Breaking bread together breaks down the barriers, right? Breaking bread. Food turns strangers into friends. And why is this? Because what happens over the meal is conversation. 
conversation. It's, it's life being transferred one to another. Last week, Holly was away for a few days at a dance competition with one of our daughters, and, and we're still new to the dance studio, and so she was away in Cam Loops, and, and her daughter was dancing there, and so they were going out for meals together, and the first night was pretty awkward. Like, Holly's pretty social. If you ever met her, she doesn't have a problem meeting people or having a conversation. She can carry a conversation really well. And, uh, and uh, she, I called her. I said, how was it? She goes, well, it was kind of awkward because I was trying to find something to relate to them about. And, and they're kind of into things that are different than what I'm into. And she's like, I've talked to a lot of people. I don't know. It was a little awkward, you know. Probably it would have been easier for her just to get takeout and go back to the room, you know, order some room service, right? It was a little awkward at first. But food turns strangers into friends, right? And so by night three, they've had dinner together. Now they're gone back to the hotel. And there are all the moms are in the hotel room together talking about mom stuff. And I don't really know what that is. But, you know, they're doing mom stuff. And they get talking about kids. And they can start talking about this world that our kids live in. You know, all the social changes. What is truth? They start talking about the hot button topics of gender and sexuality and, and how do we raise our kids. And, and these are unbelieving. These aren't Christian parents. They're just talking, sharing their ideas. And then how many know what happened, right? They turn to Holly. Holly, tell us, how does the church navigate all these hot topic issues? How does the church navigate sexuality and gender fluidity? What does the church do? And how many know like when you've just met people, like this is like, oh, you're going right for the jugular. Okay, right? <laughs> Let's just really go there, right? And just in that moment, Holly, Holy, she just prayed, Holy Spirit, come guide me. And she said this, you know, and top it out, the one lady, the lady that asked the question is like, I'm actually an atheist, and I don't really care about a theological debate. I'm just interested in knowing. So you're already like, okay, right? This is a loaded conversation. But in that moment, the Holy Spirit just said to Holly, you got this. And she just said, you know what? You can't really understand what I believe unless you know that I believe that God is the creator and that the creator is the only one who gets to set the boundaries and the rules for our lives. And those boundaries and rules aren't meant to restrict and confine us, but those boundaries and rules are actually what give us freedom. Those boundaries are the things that actually set us free to live the full and abundant life. Then she has this really awesome illustration story. How many know that a fish in a fishbowl might long to be out of the fishbowl, right? Might want to be set free from the confines of the water. You know, might look at the world around it and go, there's so much more that I want to experience, right? But how many know when you set the fish free from the fishbowl, it actually brings death, right? The fish has full freedom, it has life, it has purpose and meaning within the waters of that fishbowl. She shared that story, and this lady stood up on the bed. It's like the light bulb went off. I don't know if she stood up on the bed, but she like flipped over on the bed. And it's like, she said, I have never heard anything like that. That makes so much sense to me. She was looking at Holly as if she'd never seen, you know, such an amazing and beautiful woman. No, she was looking at her like, like truth. There's something true about what you said. She goes, I was raised in a church, but I never heard anything like this. It, all the rules and the rituals, they never made any sense to me. I was actually thinking about church for my family, and I didn't really know what benefit it would be to me and my family. But having heard that, if that's how you believe, that makes sense to me. And she said, I, I want to know more. I want to know more. 
How many know that food turns strangers into friends? And conversations give opportunity to share. Holly invited her to Alpha next month, and we're hoping that she's going to come. Alpha is an eight-week course where we're just inviting people to a conversation about faith, uh, about Jesus, about the basics of Christianity. It's a, it's a conversation over, over food. Uh, we're going to be just together at the Barley Mill Wednesday nights at 7 o'clock. And uh, we would just, we're going to, the church is going to buy appetizers for everyone who comes. And uh, they can they get their own drinks or whatever. And I shared last week uh, that I didn't want you to come. Remember, I said that poorly. Remember, I said that badly. I really do want you to come. But I, if you come, it's only because you're bringing somebody with you uh, who would benefit from this conversation. Maybe you're here and you're new to faith or you're interested, you're questioning, uh, or or maybe you're just curious, we would love to have you come and join us at Alpha on Wednesday nights. It's starting on April 19th at the Barley Mill. You can register online at bethelcab.ca slash alpha to get more uh, information. Here's the thing. As a church, we have this value, and the value is an invitational culture. Having an invitational culture is all about practicing the hospitality of God. God has loved, welcomed, and accepted us so we love, welcome, and accept others. Our church, our ministry, our programs are all designed to be inclusive in the sense that we want to create opportunities for our people, our congregation, to invite people to join with us, to get to know us, and to be a part of our community. Now, here's a little graphic I have for you. And when I think about invitation, uh, I think of it going uh, kind of two ways. Uh, we can invite people to church, which would be really great. Invite them to church. But whenever we have people coming to church, whether they're new believers or they're new to town, we're always looking to do one thing with them. We want to move them from the large congregation, the large uh, group. We want to get them into smaller groups. We, that's why we have life groups. We want to get people from Sunday uh, worship. We want to get them into life groups where they can know people and be known. And then from there, we also want to get them into one-on-one -on -one conversations with people who can mentor, disciple them. And some of you do this so well. Uh, I've heard of some of you that are, you've met new people, whether they're new to the church or they're new to, to Jesus. Either way, you do this so well. You're so hospitable that you meet new people and you take them from church. You say, well, you come to my house for lunch and you take them to that place of community. Other people, we're taking them the other direction. It's not just one way. Some people, you have coworkers, and they're not ready to come to church. But what they are ready is to come to coffee. And we want you to invite them to coffee. We want them to get to know you. And, and we want them to get to know what you believe. And you're going to invite them from coffee. Maybe you're going to invite them to your life group. Maybe they're going to attend your life group before they ever attend church. That would be amazing to have people from your workplace or your friends joining in your life group, even if they don't come to our church. Because there they're going to meet the body of Christ. You're going to meet people who are on this journey with you. And from there, we want to get them plugged into the larger assembly, the corporate assembly, the body of Christ. And so as I want to encourage you, how do I be an inviter? What can I do at Bethel Church? I want you to be thinking about how can you take Jesus up on his invitation, not just to follow him, but to be someone who invites others to follow him too. And be thinking about this diagram both ways. When you meet people here, and they're new to you, new to the church, new to the community, uh, whether they're new believers or not, how can I invite them to that place of intimacy in my home or to coffee, or, or vice versa? How can I invite people into relationship and get them into the church? 
Now, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get paralyzed because I think, you know, I really want to do more. And I really picture in my mind, what would it be like to have a big party where I invite all my friends? And how many know sometimes we kind of get this idea where uh, I want to do more and, you know, we should do it, but it actually leads to doing nothing, right? We think about what would be the grand thing and then we don't get doing it, right? How many of you, you say, you know, we should get together sometime, right? Sometime never happens, right? It doesn't happen. So this morning I want to ask you, what one small step could you take to invite someone into your life to have this conversation, to have this journey? Maybe this week it's just as simple as saying, hey, you want to do lunch together? Simple as that. Best evangelism strategy ever. You heard it here. You don't even need to like, cold call on people's doors. Just invite people you know for a coffee, invite them for lunch. Say, let's do lunch together. Maybe you'll talk about Jesus. Maybe you won't. Maybe it'll be a few lunches before you get around to your faith and what Jesus has done in you. It doesn't really matter. Here's the thing. Religion tends to look for outward signs that people are qualified to follow God. Jesus challenges all of that. And he simply says, follow me. Follow me unconditionally. Not after you get your life fixed. Not after you've made all the changes in what you believe. He says, follow me and let me lead you on the path that leads to life. I'm going to invite you to stand with me this morning. and We're going to bow our heads in prayer in just a moment. And we're just going to sing another worship song in just a second. But here's the thing. Jesus is the purpose and the point. If we miss the point, we miss the purpose. Jesus is himself both the purpose and the point of what we're doing. We're not pointing people to religion. We're not pointing people to rules. We're saying let's point them to relationship with Jesus and trust that when Jesus begins to lead their life, that he'll begin to work the change in their hearts, that he'll lead them in repentance. The Bible says that he doesn't need us to convict anyone of sin. That's his role. We just say, follow Jesus. Let him do his work in our lives. Maybe you're here this morning and say, Pastor Jeremy, I'm not following Jesus, but this morning I know that Jesus is inviting me into that relationship and I want to begin to follow him. Maybe you've said yes to Jesus before, but how do you know following and saying yes isn't just a one-time decision, it's a daily decision to follow Jesus. How many would say, Jesus, Jared, would you pray for me? I'm not, I haven't been following Jesus, but I want to just start again or, or for the first time. Will you just raise your hand? I could pray with you this morning. Say, that's me. I want to follow Jesus. Yes. Thank you so much. Anyone else? Yes, at the back. Thank you. Thank you, sir, right here. Thank you, Jesus, for those that are deciding to follow Jesus today. How many are here and you are following Jesus and you just said, I, I'm in. I, I want to keep following Jesus. Well, you put your hand up you said, I'm going to keep following Jesus. Yeah, all across this room, we're all in to say, Jesus, would you lead me and guide me? today. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do. Would you convict our hearts of our sin? Lord Jesus, would you convict us of our need to follow you? Lord, to accept this invitation to follow Jesus today. And as we do, Lord, let it lead us out of the darkness into the life and the light that you have for our lives. God, I pray right now for the peace and the joy to be restored to some people who have been really hurting. Lord, I pray for those that have been leading their own life, Lord, and have been struggling, uh, realizing that they're lost, anxiously lost, Lord, and wondering what will save them, Lord. I pray today that they would find the hope that's only found in you. God, I pray for those that have been blissfully lost, 
And yet today they hear this message, this invitation of Jesus to follow me. They're going to surrender to that today. Lord, I pray for those of us who have been on this journey. I pray we'd be like Matthew. Lord, that we would meet you and we'd be inviting our friends to meet you too. God, I pray for continual boldness and courage to invite people on the journey. Invite them not just to religion, not to rule following, but to relationship with Jesus. God, whether they're coming to church or whether they're coming to coffee, whatever it looks like this week, God, give us the boldness and the courage to invite them. Lord, I pray for our Alpha Course starting in a few weeks. God, I pray, Lord, that you would already be stirring in people's heart. Uh, I heard of another young lady yesterday who met someone from our church uh, out in the community, and, and she's interested in coming to Alpha. God, I pray that, that she would come. Lord, I pray for this mom we talked about just a second ago. Lord, I pray that you'd be stirring in the hearts of people. Lord, this desire to know you not just to know you, but to follow you. And I pray that we'd have the great privilege and journey uh, of, of leading many, many people on that journey in this coming season. Lord, I pray that this year we look back on 2023 and we would see all the people that have joined us on the journey following you together. Lord, that's our heart's cry. Lord, that's what we want to see. In Jesus' name we pray. 